you want to turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians 15 that celebrates the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I feel like we've had like four Easter Sundays in a row in this section where we're just reveling in the fact that Christ indeed has risen from the dead. Last week we considered the rock-solid certainty of the resurrection of Jesus and ours. If the dead aren't resurrected, resurrected, Paul said, then Jesus didn't rise from the dead and the entire house of cards, of course, completely crumbles. But in fact, Christ has raised from the dead to the glory of God, his Father, who raised him from the dead. Jesus is alive and he is the first fruits of all who will follow. So if last week was the fact of the resurrection, the certainty of the resurrection, then Paul now addresses in our text today the manner of the resurrection, particularly of our bodies. The resurrection body is what our sermon is called this morning. And you need to remember that he's addressing uh, the Corinthian church. This chapter comes in the midst of a church that was struggling with a lot of different issues, but one of them we found out is that there are some in the church that have begun to say that the resurrection isn't a thing, that people simply are not raised from the dead. But the even broader context includes significant confusion, therefore, about death and the afterlife. And it's right here that I think we can actually forgive the Corinthians, or at least uh, potentially relate to them, because what happens after we die has puzzled every generation of humans for as long as there has been human history. What happens? We know that death comes to us all, but then what? And sadly, ever since Jesus, it seems that most Christians don't solidly know what exactly happens. Now, my instructor for years on all things resurrection has been N.T. Wright. Uh, He wrote a book called Surprised by Hope. I would encourage you to get that book and and read it and glean from it like I have. But he writes this in in that book. He said, most people in my experience, including many Christians, don't know what the ultimate Christian hope really is. Most people, again, sadly, including many Christians, don't expect Christians to have much to say about hope within the present world. Most people don't imagine that these two, hope and the present world, could have anything to do with each other, hence the title of the book. Hope comes as a surprise at several levels at once. This morning, I believe the Lord wants to inject hope into our hearts for both this life and the life to come. So let's pray and ask him to do just that. Lord, we believe in resurrected hope, resurrection hope, and hope that's not just a desire or a wish that we have that we hope will come true, but hope that is guaranteed and sure. Lord, I pray that through your word you would teach us, that you would open our eyes to see exactly what you want us to see, to not just instruct us about things to come, but Lord, to to meet us in those places of even hopelessness in our hearts. Lord, as we we look around our lives and our world and see the things that we see, Lord, we're a people 
that live in a nation desperate for hope. And Lord, I pray that you would do that by your spirit. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to come and work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So N.T. Wright goes on to, to blame the confusion about what happens when you die on the many different variety of beliefs that exist out there regarding the afterlife. Because, for example, for the atheist or the annihilationist or the pure materialist or hedonist, what happens after you die? Nothing. You simply stop to exist. The light just goes out forever like that. And for the Buddhist, it's a little bit more poetic, but it's essentially the same. You die, but then you become a drop in the ocean in the great and nameless beyond. That sounds nice, doesn't it? A little more poetic. The good Muslim hopes to wake up to an earned paradise with unending pleasures. But the Hindu believes because of karma, you die and enter into a different body, reincarnated in order to continue to pursue perfection. And then, of course, there are all kinds of versions of life after death that include some form of a spiritual or a mystical or new agey existence. Some of them are comical, all things ghosts, right? I guess there's a TV show right now called Ghosts Out There. I haven't seen it. Or maybe you think of Ebenezer Scrooge as tour guides throughout his life. Uh, there's comical versions of this mystical ghost-like life. But then there's also this anonymous poem that was left in case of his death by a soldier going to Northern Ireland. He wrote this. He said, don't stand at my grave and weep. I am not there. I do not sleep. I am a thousand winds that blow. I am the diamond glints on snow. I am the sunlight on ripened grain. I am the gentle autumn rain. Do not stand at my grave and cry. I am not there. I do not die. So is that true? I mean, it sounds, again, kind of new agey, right? Or is Maria Shriver right? Again, Wright points this out in his book. She wrote a children's book called Heaven, and she said things like this. And, and she's a Christian. She, she wrote this because of her faith, writing this to children. She says, and I quote, heaven is somewhere you believe in. It's a beautiful place where you can sit on soft clouds and talk to other people who are there. At night, you can sit next to the stars, which are the brightest of anywhere in the universe. If you're good throughout your life, then you get to go to heaven. When your life is finished here on earth, God sends angels down to take you up to heaven to be with him. Hmm. Or, or maybe you're like this author who's actually studied 1 Corinthians 15, and he still has good questions. Let me show you this. He says, after we die, our bodies will likely be buried and then slowly decay. After many years, no distinguishable feature of our corpse will be left in the ground. Then we will resurrect from the dead? How? Will the biological material dispersed through the ground, adapted into the flora and consumed by the fauna, now be torn from these sources? 
And then what will our body be like? Will it be like we have, we have now, but with what we might call superpowers? Will a disabled body from birth have an abled body that in many ways will look and act quite differently in the resurrection, as in the case with cerebral palsy? And if someone has a disability of cognition in this life, but not in the next, then in what sense will this person's consciousness remain between the first life and the next? These are good questions, yeah? So what happens when you die and more particularly, can, what, what can every Christian expect will happen to our own bodies on the day of the Lord? And what is the, the Christian's ultimate hope for our eternal existence with God because of Jesus? You see, this is where Paul goes next. The questions that that Mr. Graham are asking in that quote are, are as ancient as the moment Christ ascended. And the question became, what happens next? So let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35. The, fir- the, the first section, he says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And then Paul says, you foolish person. Now, the way to hear this question isn't the way it appears to us, because we seem to have been asking the exact same question, kind of. But the way to hear this is to hear someone arrogantly saying, so a body that goes into the grave is resuscitated and comes back out. How is that even possible? That's not even possible. How is a body that's dead raised again? Does it come out? In the same state as it went in, a 94-year-old, a child, or a baby that didn't live? And then how are the dead raised when we know that every dead body decomposes? How do you resuscitate a body that has disintegrated? This is what Graham was asking. Not to mention a body that's been blown up. Or a body that's been eaten by sharks. Not just one shark, but, but several sharks. I'm not trying to be gross here. Just trying to follow the logic. When the dead body goes to different, or, or eaten by not just one lion, but a pride of lions, and then taken over by a, a rogue hyena that gets a little bit, and then the, the vultures that come, and then the beetles that eat the flesh, and then the, the flesh maggots that then eat the flesh, and then fly away to produce. Like, how does that body... Come back, resuscitated. That's, that's not even a thing. That, that's not even logical, Paul. How are the dead raised? Now, the tone that we're meant to hear is proven by the rebuke. Because he says, you fool. You foolish person. And he doesn't say that lightly. Paul knows that, that anyone who wrongly calls someone a fool risks judgment upon himself. But this indeed is a, a foolish mock, a foolish question, because of the following four things that we'll see. Number one, because of the power of God. It's a foolish question because of the power of God. Number two, because of both the continuity and discontinuity of resurrected bodies. Number three, because of the variety of bodies that exist in creation already. And number four, because of the necessity of a transformed body. 
So consider first the power of God. In order for this passage to click into place, you and I have to understand that how Paul answers the question, how will our bodies be raised, starts with the power of God and then has everything to do with continuity and discontinuity. I'll be, I'll be straight up. I'm like all of you. I know the section of scripture that I'm going to preach every Sunday because we preach through books of the Bible. And I start the week and sometimes I've looked ahead and others, but But a lot of times, I read the text, I spend a lot of time in the text, and I'm just like you. I read it, and I think, I have no idea what he's talking about. (laughs) It's just like, and and I'm like, oh, Lord, (laughs) please help me, because I've got something to do this Sunday with regard to this section. And it was interesting, because he's, how are the dead raised? And I read through it, and I, I thought, that doesn't hardly explain it at all. Like, I felt just as confused, right? So you do have to break this down and realize that, that he's, he starts first with the power of God, which then connects to this, this, this continuity and discontinuity idea, meaning how are the, the dead going to be raised? Well, there's going to be some things that are the same, some things that are going to be different, let me show you what I mean. Verse 35, but some will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? He says, you foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. So does that clear it all up for everybody? Right? You see what I mean? But you have to follow what he's saying. If you take a seed, of course, we can picture that. And we know that the seed will grow into, for example, a stalk of wheat. That seed starts out incredibly small, just just a sliver of a little thing. And yet, The plant and the stalk are all contained within that seed. And so when you plant the seed and the the shell decomposes, it it appears to die so that the life inside of the seed can burst out through germination and grow into a plant and then into a stalk with hundreds of grains of wheat. So it is with the resurrection, Paul is saying. In other words... The same power of God that not only invented and thought of forests of trees that come from one seed, the same wisdom and power to turn that little seed into an entire plant laden with wheat, that's the powerful God that's in charge of this project, right? It all starts with the power, you foolish person, you're you're mocking God. How are the dead to be raised? This is ridiculous. You're saying that to to the face of the God who created everything that we see in the universe, including his creativity and wisdom to take that little seed. And we, we know this. We see this all around us. But then this power of God quickly leads to this continuity and discontinuity because The entire thing is one thing. You got to follow this. The plant comes from the seed. 
It's one thing. In other words, the you that is resurrected is the you that died and was sown into the ground. Continuity pertains to identity. The you, follow this, the you that began at your conception and that has endured through your entire life, the you that is here right now in your body and the you that will one day die with all of your actions and personality and memories and the good to be rewarded and the bad to be, to be judged, that you, that identity will continue. In the same way that the entire stock came from the seed, your resurrected body will come from who you are now. And that was the very same with Jesus. It's me. You can see the the scars on my hands and on my feet. But there is also a profound discontinuity as well. How are the dead raised? Well, The body at the time of death isn't simply resuscitated. That was the problem with the question. The assumption that what went into the ground is exactly what's going to come out of the ground, just simply resuscitated. To come out the the same bodily version of itself. That's not what Paul is saying. That body is and needs to be transformed in the same way that the stock is so different from the seed. Isn't it true, again, that it, the, the seed has to die, at least phenomenologically, the, the, the husk deteriorates so that germination can happen? We, we put it into the ground just like we do uh, passed away dead bodies. Isn't it true that, that the seed has to die to then see the miracle and the glory of the stock? So there is also something profoundly different about your new resurrected body. In the same way that they knew that the the risen Jesus Christ was him, again, he said to Thomas, "It's, it's me, that same resurrected Christ could appear in rooms where doors were locked. That's different. His body was was different. There was a discontinuity in his body. And of course, after Jesus ascended into heaven, which his body was able to do, that's different than the laws of nature here. And then Paul says that, that on the way to Damascus, that Jesus shone like the sun at noonday. There was a glory connected to the resurrected body of Jesus that was stunning. So no, the same version of the body that died and was buried is not the same version of the resurrected body. What you sow is, the, is not the body that will be, Paul says. Do you see this? So as, as kernel is to full stock of corn, so is your body now to your body resurrected. That's what he's saying. By the power of God, the, the you will continue, but the body will be as transformed. I think that's where it gets weird because we're trying to connect resurrected body and, and the, the image of, of seed to stock makes the powerful analogy, right? But we don't picture our bodies as being 
in a sense, something that's going to look completely different, like a seed to stock. Because again, Jesus didn't look completely different, right? But I think we get the point. That this is what the resurrected body is going to look like. And by the way, we shouldn't be surprised either that there are different kinds of bodies. And that's Paul's third point. He says, consider next the variety of bodies that exist in creation. The assumption that the same body that goes into the ground is the same body that comes out of the ground misses the entire point of God's creative power, namely in making different kinds of bodies in the first place. Look at verse 37. He says, and, and what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable is raised imperishable. Once again, clears it up for everybody? Right? Well, well, all he's trying to say is that in referencing human bodies and also animal bodies and celestial bodies, this all illustrates God's creativity in creating different kinds of bodies and actually excellent kinds of bodies for their intended use. Again, the, the, the question is, how are the dead going to be raised? Picture a dead body going into the grave and then coming back out of the grave. Picture Lazarus, right? How, if that's what resurrection is and looks like, the same body, you're missing the whole point, Paul said. Like, it's, it's, it's going to be so transformed. It's going to be a completely different kind of body altogether. And if, and if that surprises you, just look around creation. Look at all the different kinds of bodies that God has made. There are, there are tons of varieties of physical flesh and blood and bones. Certainly humans are made of flesh and blood and bones, but so are birds which look very different from the flesh and bones of a horse or of a crocodile or of a mouse, which is very different from the flesh and blood and bones of a fish or a dolphin or a whale. And there are also different kinds of glory that resonate off of different heavenly bodies. Certainly you have stars which look like pinpricks in the sky in the ancient world, and for some reason, some of them were brighter than others, didn't understand it then, why that was, but then that was completely different from the moon that they could see, and how close it was, and how, how glorious it was in the night sky, which, which was no comparison to the sun in the sky every day, that if you looked at it, it would burn your eyes. In other words, creating different bodies that have the ability to contain a kind of glory, this is no problem for God. I mean, just, just look around. This is the point that, that Paul is making to them. 
So how is it even possible for the dead to be raised? How can the physical bodies of the dead be raised? Good gracious. In the twinkling of an eye, because of the power of God, they will be completely transformed by God. No problem. No problem here. This is what Paul's saying. And one more thing here. It's important to see that certainly God demonstrates his ability to make different kinds of bodies. But notice that these bodies are all suited for their nature. This is an an important turn to make with Paul. And this is his fourth point. He says, consider finally the necessity of a transformed body. So guys, we're talking about complete transformation, which is not difficult for God. As different as the kernel is to the stock. And in glory that we can see all around us. The resurrection of the dead body is is going to be a, a massive miracle and explosion of God's creative power to everyone here who believes. And it's not just that that's something thrilling that's going to happen the more you wrap your mind around that. But Paul's final point is the absolute necessity of this. Remember he said in verse 38, but God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. He's able to do this, no problem for God. And then look again in verse 42, or look at verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. All this has been leading up to. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. And then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man, Jesus, is from heaven. As was the man of dust so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born in the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Look, here's here's the simple point. The main thrust of this section is the reality for that, for, for eternity that is coming, namely, an eternity where we will occupy a new heavens and a new earth for eternity. Uh, what Paul is saying here is that a new body is required for that existence in eternity. That's what you, you glean out of this. A new body that is compatible with that new reality or that new realm that we will populate for eternity. These verses contain, therefore, 
incredible comfort and incredible hope when we think about being transformed in the twinkling of an eye, but they also contain an incredible necessity. And I want to say that again. The eternity that we're going to inhabit forever. This is after the throne room scene in heaven right now, where everybody who has passed away has gone to now, awaiting their own resurrection body. When God makes all things new and creates a new heavens and a new earth, and the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven from God into a, a recreated new creation, a physical world, in the twinkling of an eye, every believer of all time will be transformed and receive a resurrection body. We will be made new. And that is not only hopeful, but it's necessary because of that new heavens and new earth that we're going to occupy forever. These bodies simply won't do there. There's the need for a transformation. And that's why Paul says what is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. The problem with thinking about the same body that went into the grave that comes out the same is that that body was sown into the grave. It was perishable. Certainly, it was a fine body. It was a good body. It was a useful body in this world. But because this world is infected and and is groaning under the weight of sin and decay and death, that body that is sown into the ground was susceptible to sin and decay and death. To simply resuscitate a body like Jesus did with Lazarus is to raise a body that is still perishable, that's still able to suffer, which Lazarus did after he was raised, which was still able to sin, which Lazarus did. A body that cannot inherit the kingdom of God. What is necessary is a new and transformed body that is imperishable. That's what we need. A body that has left sin and decay and death behind and is only constituted for immortality and imperishability through the full and final freedom from sin, decay, and death. Just like Jesus' body. Imperishable not able to age or decay any longer. This is a feature of your resurrected body. Not able to groan any longer. Not able to ache ever again. No longer perishable. No longer subject to all that that produces that groaning and ache in our lives. I wonder if you can imagine that. Imagine a body that will will be imperishable for all of eternity. This is not only comforting and hopeful, you need to see that this is necessary for the life in the new heavens and the new earth. He says, second, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. Look, we know this. Death as we know it now is so utterly dishonorable. It's horrible. The wasting away, the increasing frailty, the dishonoring loss 
of once healthy and thriving bodies that, that simply just seem to slowly implode over the years or the decades. The loss of control over bodily functions. So utterly dishonorable. The rigor mortis that contorts the body. You've been to an open casket funeral, haven't you? They do their best. But can we just be honest? A, that's not them, right? And B, it's so dishonorable. Not that, not that you try to have an opportunity to, to say goodbye and to, to receive closure, but it's, it just doesn't even look. Like for that to be kind of a, a final view, right? The body is sown in dishonor, Paul says. And this is not the body that rises. It is raised in glory, he says. You will shine like stars, Jesus said. There's a kind of glory, a kind of weight to you that will be as significantly different from anything you've ever seen as a seed is to the entire stock. Eric, what kind of glory are we talking about? I don't know. All we can, all we can do is, is look at Jesus and his resurrected body, right? which, which when he showed up in that room with the door locked, he had to tell them, peace be with you, right? And he shone like the sun when he saw Paul. Look, dishonorable goes away forever when you're resurrected into a new body raised in a glory that none of us can even imagine. I just think we'll see each other and we'll just laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh with joy at how utterly crazy this is. (laughs) Like, look at us. He says, third, what is sown in weakness is raised in power. Human life now, as we all know, is fundamentally defined by weakness of some sort and getting weaker and weaker all the time. Look, these verses honestly didn't mean as much to me when I was 20. And I don't think they mean as much to anybody who's at what you would call your physical prime. But we are still so weak and helpless to the tragedies and diseases and difficulties and trials that just simply kick us in the teeth. There's a weakness that's, that's not only recognizable, but that is felt so deeply. The longer you live, you realize you have zero control of anything. Am I right? You just have zero control of anything. You think you do when you're young. But the older you get, there's a kind of weakness that's felt in that. And it can actually derail you into a kind of of distress or distraughtness. If you don't understand the concept of, of this world is defined by weakness. But Paul says what's sown in weakness is raised in power. I wonder if you can imagine a life and a body only defined by 
power. A body with perfect power. According to the limits that Jesus assigns or God assigns himself, but, but for us, a body with perfect power, which is, is not just encouraging and hopeful, but will become necessary for the kind of life that God calls us to in a new heaven and a new earth. There's a, a kind of power that's going to be necessary to live and to love and to work and to explore and to build and to worship and to do all of the things that God calls us to do forever and ever and ever. A body that's, that's powerful enough to behold the glory of God forever without being disintegrated. Look, this is, this is necessary for us. Our bodies then will not be constrained to the powerlessness of your life now. The, the weaknesses of DNA in your makeup that has, that has coded your height or your hair color or, or what you hope to look like or not in this life. The weakness of a constitution that maybe you you eat right and exercise, or maybe there's a kind of weakness where you just don't. All of that goes away. Your imperishable body will be only marked by power unchanging forever and ever and ever. This is what Paul is trying to tell us. You're not going to be resurrected the age you were when you die. You will not be resurrected the size or shape that comports to this world. You will be completely transformed. And yet it will be you. And we'll see each other and we'll just laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh at how crazy this is. What Christ has done. Look, this is, is comforting and hopeful, of course. But I think what we need to see is it's, it's necessary. This transformation is necessary for where we're headed. And then he says, lastly, it's sown a natural body. It has raised a spiritual body. Now, this doesn't reintroduce spirit versus matter dichotomies. What Paul means is that our current body is natural in that it is compatible with the world in which we live in now, in the flesh, and only compatible in this broken and fallen world where even though our hearts are alive by the Spirit and indwelt by the Spirit, the flesh is still at war with the Spirit. But the body that we receive that day will be fully and perfectly inhabited and animated by the Holy Spirit with no natural fleshliness or sin nature to remain. Look, a new life and a new heavens and a new earth with a, our body and spirit completely united to Christ and perfectly inhabited by the Holy Spirit in us that unites us to Christ. This spiritual body is necessary for the new world and eternity in glory to come. We need a body that can behold the face of Christ and the glory of God. Again, your resurrection body will be you, but it will be transformed, brothers and sisters, into everything you ever hoped, everything you ever imagined, everything you ever dreamed. You will be the perfect you and a perfect body to live and to love and to work and to explore, again, to worship. 
forever and ever and ever. He says, look, the, the, the first man was made from the dust. That's why he says this. He gave us good bodies for this fallen world, as was Adam, so are we. Adam was made of the dust of the earth. But Jesus came from heaven, our eternal home. And this is why we must be born again, he told Nicodemus. We must be born of the Spirit. And this is why the Spirit given to us is a guarantee that just as Jesus was raised, we will be raised. Because if the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, you will be raised. We talked about the, the popcorn last time, right? How, how the kernel completely transforms. It's the same thing, but it, it pops. And, and you probably know the science. I got this from a kid's show, actually. It says that there's water in the kernel, right? This all happens because that water, as it heats, little bit of water in the kernel, as it heats up and gets to a certain point, it turns into a gas and expands in the kernel until the husk can't take it anymore, and it pops inside out. Look, if the Spirit of God is in you, it's like that water in the kernel. That the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, if he dwells in you right now, you look like the kernel, and you will, but one day, wham, going to pop and you're going to be resurrected and transformed in the twinkling of an eye along with every other believer from all time. Look, this is, is what Jesus Christ came to die for and win for us. Christ died once and for all for our sins to bring us to God. We rejoiced in the good news of that, that we have a Savior who has opened up a way to the very throne of the God who made us and loves us through his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of all of our sins. But there's one more thing that needs to happen prior to him physically bringing us to the God that we now worship by faith. And that is to completely change our bodies so that we can stand before him. And live for eternity in a place where there's no more tears and no more death and no more difficulty and no more weakness, but only power and glory and a spiritual body inhabited by the Spirit forever and ever and ever. This is the joy that was set before Christ and why he endured the cross. To bring you and me and many sons and daughters to glory one day. Look, how are, the, how are the dead raised? Come on, people, right? That's what he's saying, you fools. You don't understand anything. If you don't understand the power of God. Which means that in the end, I mean, where, where do you go with this? Because that resurrection power, we believe, has broken into our lives now. That same spirit that raised Christ from the dead does dwell in us now. The new creation has begun in the resurrection of Christ. And we are new creations in Christ the minute we are born again and indwelt by the spirit. So eternity has already begun for us, which then therefore means everything in our lives matter today. It all matters. Because the new creation that's to come has already begun in our hearts now. 
which means that, that all of our, our work and all of our relationships, it all matters. Tomorrow morning, Monday morning matters for eternity because what happens tomorrow will reverberate into eternity. Will you give me a, a, a minute to explain one thing? What I mean by this, and I don't just mean the, the rewards that we can't imagine. You know, you, you give and, it, and it press down, shake and give them back to you. And don't, don't store up treasures in this earth, but store up treasures in heaven. So all the things that we do are, are amassing treasures in heaven, which we don't really know what that is. But we got that going for us, right? Which is great. But think about the fruit of the Spirit is kindness. If tomorrow you are kind to someone, just kind. One day you're going to share eternity if that person was a Christian. You're going to share eternity with that person that you were kind to. And there's a possibility that this whole earth and world will have passed away. But what will not have passed away is 10,000 times, 10,000 years down the road into eternity, that person can come up to you and say, do you remember? Do you remember that time before? When we were the old creation, and maybe we don't want to remember a lot of it, but you were kind to me. You were kind to me. Like, it's us. We, the scars on Jesus' hands and feet will reverberate into eternity, right? And the things that we do, we know will reverberate into eternity for the collection of rewards, And the way that Christ is at work within us toward one another will reverberate into eternity. With all of our, our sins and nastiness completely done away with, forgiven, removed from us. Look, the resurrection of Christ gives hope for this life and hope for the life to come. And we need to, to wrap our minds around the guarantee if the Spirit is in you. We can wrap our hearts and minds around the longing that exists in our hearts because we so desperately long, as does all creation, for the sons of God to be revealed. And we need to wrap our minds around the opportunity that we have to be like Christ now as we're being transformed into his image and one day we'll see him face to face. This is what's going to happen to everyone who puts your trust in Christ. If you don't, I, I pray that you will. That's why John 3.16 is the heart of the gospel. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him, just through the door of faith and trusting in this salvation, you will not perish, but will have everlasting life in a body that's completely transformed at the resurrection that will live forever and ever and ever. Amen? This is great, isn't it? It's confusing at first glance. But I believe that this is what Paul is saying. In order to, to argue for the, sure, the surety of what's going to happen to us and to encourage our hearts, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Lord, our hope is alive because you are alive. Lord, we thank you that that one day, all of this will come true, that the great day of the Lord will happen, that the sky will part, that the trump shall resound. And as fast as the twinkling of an eye, 
we will be transformed. And all that we hoped will happen. And all that we believed and longed for will happen. Lord, I pray that that surety would give us faith and grace and hope and power to live today. Jesus, you're with us. You're for us. You never leave us or forsake us. You've given us your spirit. I pray that you would help us to live for you and your glory. Until that day, we see your face. Though we have not seen you, we love you. And though we don't see you now, we believe in you. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Jesus, thank you for all that you've done to secure this great salvation. Lord, for nobody, for sinners like us, who you deeply loved and gave yourself for. Amen.